If you're looking for some good reading for this weekend, you can't go wrong with Act Naturally, The Beatles on Film, written by Steve Matteo, who joins me this morning. Steve, great to have you on today, and let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. When did your fascination with The Beatles begin? First of all, thanks for having me on this morning. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, I mean, I guess when I was a child, you know, The Beatles were on the radio, um, all the hits from the 60s. And then moving into the 70s, I, I think I got more into the albums. And then, um, you know, I worked in radio, and so the Beatles were definitely a staple of, of what we were playing on the radio. So, I mean, it just continues through the years. Um, you know, there's always new reissues and um, new uh, documentaries and, you know, the various Beatles tour. It, they, it, they just never seem to go away, thankfully. Well, you've got nearly 340 pages of information about the Beatles, their movies, and other little tidbits as well. Would it be safe to say their first movie, A Hard Day's Night, was their best movie? Yes, I think it was, because it was brown. It was really groundbreaking. It sort of transcended pop music movies. It had a great soundtrack. Uh, it was very influential on other movies of the time. It stands up very well today. Uh, I mean, I think they were all in on that movie, um, not, maybe not so much on help. So, yeah, so the director, uh, Richard Lester, was a very innovative, very influential film director who also directed help. So, yes, I would definitely agree with your statement. Now, full disclosure, I haven't seen that movie in a couple of decades or so, but one thing that stands out to me that was always amusing from A Hard Day's Night was the Irish actor Wilfred Brambell. He played Paul McCartney's fictional grandfather, John McCartney. He was already well-known to British television audiences as a co-star of the British sitcom Steptoe and Son. What can you tell me about the casting of Wilfred and his role in that movie? Well, he was he was really very clean, which was the joke throughout the whole movie. And what the joke was, was that he played this character that you alluded to, who was very much sort of dirty old man. <laughs> so um, he played against the type of the TV character. And, you know, he was a major star in England at the time. And, and he really is, you know, in many respects, like almost an equal of the Beatles in the film. You know, he's a, he's a recurring character through the whole movie. So... Uh, you know, he's, he's very amusing, and I think that when people watch the film for the first time, you know, he's one of the characters, other than the four Beatles, that I think people tend to gravitate towards and, you know, really enjoy. What was the effect of the groundbreaking comedy team, The Goons, who included Peter Sellers, on the movie A Hard Day's Night? Well, Richard Lester did a uh, short film called The Running, Jumping, and Standing Still film. And essentially, it was it was the goons who were like a, a comedy troupe in England prior to, like, say, Monty Python. And um, Peter Sellers was one of them, as just as his film career was getting started in England. And so he very much was a, a major influence on them. And oddly enough, uh, George Martin, who produced the Beatles, also worked with the goons. So they were very much into that kind of humor. And uh, having Lester as your director was able they were able to even bring that out even more so. What was Ringo Starr's role in the naming of the movie A Hard Day's Night? Well, at this time, you know, Beatlemania is really in the peak and the Beatles are so busy. I mean, they're doing everything. They're recording, they're doing uh, radio appearances, television appearances, concerts. They're everywhere. 
And one day, as they had one of their very, you know, typical long days that seemed to stretch out into the night, you know, Ringo said, well, that was a really hard day. And they, oh, hard day's night. And what's funny is that the the saying actually shows up in uh, one of John's books before the film. And some people have said, well, maybe it was John. And, well, actually, it was probably John who had heard Ringo say it. So, uh, yeah, this is this won't be the first time that, you know, Ringo will come up with one of these kind of sayings and then uh, it turns into a, you know, a song or a running joke. Or almost into a movie. Their second movie was called Help, and he nearly named a different title for that one, too, didn't he? Right. That was uh, eight, eight Arms to Hold You, which was, a, you know, a title that they were working with, you know, pretty, pretty far into the production. But the problem was is that John and Paul really couldn't come up with a, a you know a song. They needed a you know movie theme song, and it was just just too hard. So they were going to call it Help, but then they found out there was already a movie named Help, and so Richard Lester came up with the idea of well, we'll just put an exclamation point at the end, and and that takes care of that. <laughs> You know, Steve, you've mentioned Lester's name a couple of times. Let's talk about the influence he had, because those movies were fun, they were zany, and a lot of that was Richard Lester's creativity, wasn't it? I mean, he was probably the driving sort of cinematic force behind it. I mean, the script was well done. You know, the Beatles improvised a lot. Uh, They were very influenced by, as you said before, you know, the goons and that sort of humor. But Lester was, you know, a, a really interesting guy. He was an American in England, and um, he had made a couple of films, and he really had a kind of a unique take, and he very much fit in sort of with the sort of British kind of sense of humor at the time. He was also an accomplished uh, pianist. He could play jazz. So he understood music, and he brought that sense of rhythm to the way that he made the film. So he, he's really an important figure. He also, which was very important for the time, is he was working on a lot of um, commercials, television commercials, and he brought that kind of, you know, spontaneity and the kind of brevity of a, of a commercial to the idea of making it. He was very influenced by, you know, sort of French New Wave films and, you know, documentary, because it's, it's very much a documentary-style film. It's a, it's a fiction film but it's done very much in that sort of cinema verite style. And one story that I enjoyed in the book that I'd kind of forgotten about was the role of the actress Eleanor Braun in Help. Tell me an Eleanor Braun story. Well, she was actually a pretty fascinating woman. I mean, she was, obviously she was very beautiful, and the Beatles were very sort of taken by her. They really liked her. But she was very interesting because she was one of the first women to be involved in some of these sort of groundbreaking comedy troops that they had in England uh, at places like the Establishment Club. And, and she, was, she became a writer. She wrote several books. She went on to star in a lot of films. Um, they really enjoyed working with her. And she shows up in a lot of wonderful British films of the time. And, you know, she wasn't just a typical sort of, you know, at that time, let's face it, there was a lot of sometimes women in some of these films who were very sort of decorative. (laughs) I mean, she was very attractive, but she was very intelligent. She was very witty. She was able to sort of hold her own in terms of the kind of interesting, kind of unique, quirky comedy that they were doing. 
And the Beatles also uh, kind of were fashion mavens at time. In fact, they had a ski resort attire that they wore in the Austrian Alps in the movie Help, and that kind of became the iconic cover for the, the Help soundtrack. What was the deal with the ski resort attire? What was the inspiration for that? Well, th- there were so many different inspirations. I mean, I think that the main person that sort of was dressing them at this time was this guy, Doogie Millings. And he was like one of these sort of very bespoke sort of London tailors, but had a flair for this sort of, this new sort of style that the Beatles were sort of, they were influenced by, but also creating themselves. And what's interesting is that as the help cover, you see those pictures of them, is they actually, those pictures were taken inside a a studio, inside a photography studio. They're not from the set, you you know, out in the, and on the ski slopes there, you know, and they just had different fun with the hats and um, the way they're sort of doing these supposed semaphore signals that were supposed to spell out help, H-E-L-P, and it, it, and it isn't. It's, it's something else entirely. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the American album versus the U.K. album, it's different. It spells something different, which was which is kind of fun. Beatle fans love all of this sort of trivia and minutia. <laughs> I think you know the a- the average people walking around go what? <laughs> I love this stuff. The movie, uh, the book is called "Act Naturally: The Beatles on Film." We're joined this morning by Steve Matteo. As the Library Journal says, this is great for the super fans and Beatles trivia lovers for Beatles and film enthusiasts. This book just came out last month. Steve, what kind of reaction have you gotten? Have you gotten some surprising feedback? Well, the good news is the book is selling briskly. (laughs) And that's when you're an author, that's the most important thing. It's been selling about 500 copies a week, which is pretty good for a book like this. And, you know, we've gotten some mixed reviews. I mean, there's been some people who thought the book was a little long and a little too detailed. But, I mean, I think for the people who are really into the Beatles and people who like film, I think there's, there's a lot in there. I really tried to uncover some new things or take some things that maybe were known but not that well known and put them into context. I didn't want to just go from film to film to film to film. I wanted to add a lot of context about, you know, the, the British invasion, the music British invasion, about what was going on in British films, um, you know, what was going on in the culture, you know, uh, when we get into the sort of magical mystery tour and Yellow Submarine, I wanted to get into what was going on in the world in terms of the psychedelic culture in London and in San Francisco. And, you know, I really wanted there to be connective tissue where the where the Beatles story about these films is not just in this vacuum, you know. And I wanted people to understand how important the people are behind the scenes who were involved in making these films, the directors, the cinematographers, the other actors. You know, there's so many amazing people who worked on these films. Uh, the guy that did the cinematography for A Hard Day's Night was the same one who did cinematography for Dr. Strangelove. Uh, believe it or not... There are people that worked on these Beatle films that went on to work on the Harry Potter films, the Lord of the Rings films. I mean, it's extraordinary the careers that some of these people had. And I really wanted to bring that out. I really you know, wanted to make, uh, make it clear that these people, that their contribution to these films is significant. Great, great stuff. Now, you mentioned Yellow Submarine. That was a groundbreaking movie for animation. Why? 
Well, it was groundbreaking in that feature-length animated films were pretty much made for children. I mean, you could say they were made for the family, too, but they weren't made to be aimed specifically at adults. And Yellow Submarine really was the first one. And so it, it becomes really important and influential, and it, it goes on to influence all kinds of, you know, animated films that would go on for decades. And um, so I, it's really important. I mean, it's very different what was done on that film, the way it was done. The whole idea was to not do it like a Disney film. And they, you know, they did it very different, and they did it in a very short time period, where normally an animated film could take years. You know, they did it in about a year. So um, it's, it's really fascinating. The whole story of the making of Yellow Submarine, which really does not include the Beatles very much as part of the story, is really, really interesting. Yeah, in fact, one thing that I really liked about it, on page 219 here, it says, Unfortunately, the animation was rather crude on some episodes, and when the group was performing a song, the wrong Beatle was often shown singing it. This wasn't the only example of often bizarre continuity. In a case of foreshadowing, the first episode included a submarine and an octopus, long before Yellow Submarine, the song, or movie, was even an idea, and years before Ringo wrote Octopus Garden. Is there more to that story? Well, what you're referring to there is not the Yellow Submarine movie. You're referring to the Beatles cartoons. And the Beatles cartoons, the same people who did them went on to do Yellow Submarine. But the Beatles really didn't like the cartoons. They felt that they were sort of crude, and they, they just showed them as the, the sort of mop tops, and they didn't really progress. But, the, but those folks went on to pretty much be the producers of Yellow Submarine, and they really took a leap forward in terms of creativity. So, But I think people still love to see those old cartoons. You know, They are fun to watch, and it's fun to kind of pick out these, these sort of little Easter eggs that you can, you can find in them. And it was fun researching that part of it, too, because I remember those cartoons when I was a kid. I remember seeing them on television. Steve, I think a lot of people from that era saw Hard Day's Night, saw Help, fewer people saw Yellow Submarine, fewer people saw Magical Mystery Tour. What's the legacy of that? Well, Magical Mystery Tour technically is not, it's not a feature film. It was a television show. It was, the Beatles started out with the idea that it would be a film, but then it became a television show. It was, it was only 45 minutes. And so it was originally shown on British television, on December 26th, which in England is the day after Christmas, is called Boxing Day. It's like another holiday. And so it's very much a day where people are with their families and nursing their hangovers. <laughs> and, you know, they want to watch, you know, Christmas Fair. And so here we are, and this black and white, psychedelic, insane television show comes on. <laughs> and it did not do very well at first. And then it was quite a long time before it ever started receiving any kind of airings, you know, in the United States or in movie theaters. And it very much became one of those sort of what used to be called, you know, midnight movies, you know, cult movies. Uh, it, was a, it was a 70s phenomenon uh, in movie theaters in the United States, probably to a lesser degree um, over in England. You know, Yellow Submarine, I think, probably was... It was similar in the other films where it was shown in movie theaters. But then that also became sort of part of the sort of midnight movie, cult movies. But that used to be shown on American television pretty frequently. 
and Steve Let It Be was the Beatles' last movie. Talk about that, and also the impact of Phil Spector's work on the Let It Be album and how that eventually led to the Beatles' breakup. Well, the original idea was Get Back was going to be the Beatles were going to get back to playing live, and they at first filmed the rehearsals, and then they said, you know, no, we don't know what we're going to do. Let's, let's make a film of the new songs. And then they did the rooftop concert, and then it kind of, the whole thing sort of got shelved. And finally, um, it was John Lennon, really, who got Phil Spector to take these tapes and turn it into what became the Let It Be album. And Paul McCartney did not like what Phil Spector did. He felt that he overproduced a lot of it, particularly The Long and Winding Road. So uh, I just summed up what is, you know, in the book, of, you know, a big chunk of it. And we talk about the Get Back series, the Peter Jackson series also. So uh, that's, a, that's a whole story. And I wrote an entire book on Let It Be. That was my second book. So um, a big topic. <laughs> and a little off topic here, but it does relate to the Beatles. Artificial intelligence has been used to extract John Lennon's voice from an old demo to create, quote, the last Beatles record decades after the band broke up, said Paul McCartney this week. What are your thoughts on bringing back Beatles things and recreating them using artificial intelligence? I don't know. I, I went, honestly, when I first heard it, it didn't make me happy. Um, I mean, look, they've done this before where they took demos, cassette demos of things that John wrote, and then the, and then the surviving Beatles and Jeff Lynne made songs out of it. I mean, that's fine. But to, for artificial intelligence... I think maybe we have reached the end of civilization now if they're making AI of the Beatles. <laughs> Amen to that. Fantastic book called Act Naturally, The Beatles on Film. Steve, how do people get a copy of it? I mean, it's, every, it's pretty much everywhere. I know it's in the Barnes & Noble stores. Uh, you can get it through Amazon. Um, it, it's definitely around. It's pretty easy to get. A lot of fun talking about the Beatles and Act Naturally. Steve, thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you. It was great being here. Author Steve Mateo, our guest this morning on 14 WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.